Welcome to MI502, History of Missions Midterm Exam. Today we're going to look at the first half of the semester in MI502, and we start with the Apostle Paul. You know, some people said, you know, Paul had a lot of advantages. That's why he was able to do such a fantastic job. Look at good roads. Uh, that time they had peace of the around their so-called Pax Romana, Every, the Romans kept everything under control, and everybody spoke Greek. And furthermore, he could go to the Jewish synagogues. Jewish synagogues were scattered all over the world since the dispersion, uh, which first started with the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, and then, of course, later, after the death of Paul, with the destruction of the temple as well. So they had a lot of advantages. Yes, he had a lot of advantages, but he had a lot of disadvantages, too because the Romans hated Christians after a while. At first, the Romans thought that this was a Jewish sect and thus protected a licensed or legitimate religion. But when they saw that that was not the case and the Jews were rejecting them, they began to um, persecute them. Why did they do that? Well, first of all, if someone's being immoral themselves, they hate people who are living moral lives. And so the moral lives of the Christians placed them under conviction. They didn't uh, carouse. They didn't go to the theater. They didn't go to the amphitheater. Uh, they weren't getting drunk all the time. They accused them of being disloyal citizens. Well, the only disloyalty they had was their first loyalty was to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, they would not say uh, Caesar is Lord because they said Jesus is Lord. But other than that, they were totally loyal, and they were not disloyal citizens. They never rose up against Rome. They accused them of uh, burning down Rome. That was an accusation that Nero made, but in fact, Nero himself had precipitated the uh, problem, and he had instigated the fire and then used the uh, Christians as a scapegoat. They also said, oh, these guys are immoral. They have the kiss of peace. They go around kissing people. And hey, they are cannibals because they eat the, they have a love feast, and then they eat the body of Christ. So all sorts of lies were being told. Well, how did they spread the gospel? Well, first of all, everybody witnessed, not just the apostles or the pastors or the martyrs or even just the men, the women, the, perhaps even the children, all witnessed, especially as they were spread abroad. And not only did they preach, but they showed acts of kindness in the name of the Lord Jesus. Some of them were very talented in explaining things. They were apologetics uh, type of people. And then perhaps the greatest witness was during persecution, often leading to martyrdom, they maintained their faithful witness and did not back off. An example of this was shown in the Martyrs of Lyons. By the way, the uh, person they thought would really fold during that time was a slave woman by the name of Blandina, but she stood strong and encouraged the other martyrs during this time. They said that there were two problems with martyrdom there. First of all, the tortures were horrible. For example, Blandina was tossed by wild uh, beasts, I believe by uh, wild bulls, and made to sit on an uh, iron seat that was red hot and yet she maintained her testimony. 
Well, other people were there too. Perpetua, who uh, was a young noblewoman who had just delivered a baby. Her father pled with her to um, worship Caesar and, and recant. Uh, she refused, and uh, she and uh, her faithful uh, uh, servant or slave girl, um, Felicia, were um, uh, among the persons who were uh, killed in the amphitheater. There were others, many others as well. For instance, Polycarp, bishop. Uh, I'm trying to remember if he's bishop of Ephesus or bishop of Smyrna. Polycarp was a great, great man. At age 85, they finally uh, caught him and brought him, and their hope was not that he would uh, die as a martyr. Their hope was that he would renounce Christ. But he said to them, he's been faithful to me 85 years that I've known him, 85 years of age. How can I deny my king? And so uh, apparently the story goes that they tried to burn him, and when it looked like the fire was burning away from them, a tradition at least says that the emperor gave an order. He was uh, killed with a sword through the fire, and then the fire was was burned out. I suspect that's probably just a tradition and not true. Other famous men during this period of time uh, were perhaps the best known. Bishop Patrick, we know St. Patrick. Many people feel that St. Patrick, they think, oh, that's a Roman Catholic saint. Well, he wasn't Roman Catholic. He was actually a Celtic uh, man from the, a different group. Uh, the Celts had different uh, rules and were a different church from the Roman Catholic Church. He was captured as a young boy, taken to uh, Ireland, and uh, was able to escape. Uh, his parents uh, and his grandfather were uh, were believers, and eventually he became a believer and then went back eventually and uh, saw many, many people get saved as they uh, conflicted with the uh, Druids in uh, that area. Another was Ophanus, whose uh, father was a Goth. His mother apparently was captured by the Goths, and uh, of course he was raised initially uh, speaking Gothic. Went, got converted, went to Rome, came back, and uh, ultimately was um, like bishop of the to the Goths. He, among other things, translated the entire Bible into the Goth. Uh, Gothic language, with the exception of, I believe, it was First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, the section that was had a lot of warring, and he said these guys have enough warring without being encouraged by the Bible. Accurate translation from the TR still, uh, is, and this was at the time of the uh, translations that are occurred. Uh, that is, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, about the same time. There was also Augustine of Canterbury. Now, you would distinguish him from Augustine of Hippo. Augustine of Hippo, that's in North Africa, has a great intellectual mind, and he's the guy who gave the confessions of Augustine, apparently lived, left uh, a very dissolute life, and then... Uh, while his mother was praying for his conversion, he would stay there and not run to Rome. He went and then met 
Ambrose, and was converted at that point, and became perhaps the strongest theologian for a hundred years, uh, pardon, a thousand years among the Roman Catholics. In fact, he still study uh, things that Augustine wrote today. But this is Augustine of Canterbury, who was sent by the Pope there. First, he didn't want to go, was afraid, finally went, and had considerable success uh, at the level of the king and many of his subjects, baptized many of them, and had a great ministry uh, at that location. Well, let's move on past the first five or six hundred years. Uh, before we do that, however, I should uh, mention also the Edict of Milan and Constantine. Constantine was in a situation where he was in a competition to see who was going to be the next Caesar. There was going to be a big fight about this. And his troops were outnumbered two to one by the opposition. And the story goes that he saw a vision in the sky with a cross and basically heard these signs in this sign, conquer. So he painted crosses on the um, shields of his men, marched them along the river, had priests dip uh, branches apparently into the water and throw water on them, baptizing them, so sort of called. And uh, then he went to a fight and he won. Well, true to his word, when he won, he made it so that it was no longer illegal to be a Christian. It's interesting that this was just about nine years after Domitian uh, in 303 had said, we're going to eliminate all Christianity, destroy every church, burn every uh, Bible, and kill every Christian. Heaviest and worst uh, persecution followed by the Edict of Milan. Well, you would think that the church would um, become much more powerful, and it did in terms of finances and uh, political power. It was flooded with heathen now that the uh, church was popular, and many of the heathen priests brought their heathen priestly uh, things that they did with them and simply, quote-unquote, Christianized them. So persecution did stop. Lots of heathen came in. They became rich and powerful, but the whole church was watered down. The whole business of, of martyrdom, gone. And so uh, we begin now for the church to head a downhill journey, and many of the rites and traditions of the Catholic Church started during this period of time. Also, about the same time, uh, there was a monastery, I believe the Celts began it, not absolutely sure, but there was a monastery in Iona. And this monastery served as a great launching pad for missionary outreach for many years as well. During the next number of years, uh, there were uh, two major problems that needed to be handled. One was the bar barbaric hordes of Europe, the Franks, Goths, and others that came pouring in. And the second is the attack of the Islamic troops who made a two-pronged attack, one across North Africa and into Spain and all the way up into France, finally stopped by Charles Martel at the Battle of Tours. Very important man, very important battle. Uh, and they swung through the uh, country of Turkey and up into the Balkans as well, 
A couple times came as far as Vienna, but were stopped again. So the barbaric hordes coming in from the north and the east, and then the Islamic troops coming basically from the south, were both major problems. During this time, perhaps the most famous man who worked with them, especially the people in the north, was a man by the name of Boniface. Now, when I look at that in certain tongue, I think of Bonnie, uh, uh, Boniface would be good face. At any rate, uh, he was uh, perhaps the best known of all the missionaries, uh, presented the gospel, at least as far as we know, Catholic fashion. Uh, one of his things he did was he had a power conflict. There was a Many people worshipped the false god Thor, T-H-O-R, god of the Vikings and such. And they had a sacred oak. And so uh, Boniface went and actually chopped down the sacred oak of Thor, and down she went, and nothing happened to Boniface. And furthermore, he split it up and took some of the wood from it and apparently made a pulpit from it, a wonderful demonstration of God's power. Charles Martel's uh, family was, it was followed by Charlemagne, uh, and Charlemagne actually consolidated and had an empire which encompassed much of all of Europe. In fact, uh, later on, Hitler was hoping to be able to duplicate that feat. Uh, however, after he uh, died, they weren't able to, one person was not able to hold that. They had the Treaty of Verdun and uh, split up uh, the uh, area of France and Italy and um, Germany among his sons. Uh, one of the uh, followers of him, uh, Pepin the Short, uh, Charlemagne, by the way, was huge, apparently about seven foot tall, uh, from what I understand. Pepin the Short uh, was, um, among other things, gave a uh, donation uh, which went to form the Vatican States. Later on, there was found there was a so-called paper saying the a donation of Constantine. However, that turned out to be a fake. During uh, this period of time, as well, I should mention for uh, completeness the Nestorians. The Nestorians had a problem with the uh, nature of Christ, uh, whether. Uh, human and divine nature became one or not. And, but other than that, they were, as much as you could say, Orthodox Christians, and not only were they Orthodox uh, to the largest, to a large extent, but they were extremely aggressive in outreach and discipleship and placed a heavy emphasis on the Word of God. They traveled from uh, Europe into the East, went through the um, western portion of Asia, and ended up going as far as China. This was during the 7th century, and they were in China up till the 14th century. Uh, at one time, they had a couple hundred bishops there, and uh, a strong presence of Christianity in China through the group called the Nestorians. Other people who had influence, a fellow by the name of Anskar, who had a rather stormy career um, as um, Bishop of Hamburg, and also going up into uh, the uh, Denmark and Sweden and uh, Norwegian area, and was considered the apostle to the north. So he really took those uh, 
countries of Denmark and uh, Sweden in particular, and I guess Norway as well, as an area that he had a major influence on. Farther south, there were a pair of brothers who were also extremely influential, and they still celebrate their uh, ministry uh, on a yearly basis today. Saw pictures of uh, them marching through the street with a picture of Cyril and Methodius. One was a great artist, one was uh, brilliant in language, and Cyril developed the Cyrillic alphabet uh, for the Bulgarians and translated the material into Bulgarian, that is the uh, mass and other things, and held services, uh, perhaps to the disgust of uh, some of the Ro those in Rome, in native language. As we approach the latter portion of the Middle Ages, one man stands out in particular. Now, there were other people who had contact with Muslims. For example, St. Francis of Assisi had some contact with Muslims. But the primary man that we think of is Raymond Lull. Raymond Lull uh, originally was somewhat wealthy, led a profligate life, uh, did get married and uh, had kids, and then came, became converted and really felt that he should serve God and felt the way to do that was to become a monk. So he left his wife and child with money, I'm not advocating that by the way, uh, and went into a monastery and then focused on learning Arabic, wrote many, many things in Arabic, started a um, school, I believe in Majorca, and eventually went to Algeria himself on multiple occasions. At the end of his life, at about age 80, he went back. He did such things, for example, as opening uh, the Ten Commandments and showing how the Prophet Muhammad had broken all ten of them, not a way to endear yourself to them. He had been jailed before, probably because of his age not killed, but this time he was stoned to death. Shortly, uh, well, I should say a century or two after that, we see the uh, countries of Spain and Portugal opening the area of the New World. One of the important people during that time is Las Casas, who was first a secular man and then a priest in, I think, what they called Hispaniola, but later is known as Cuba. He became a defender of the native people and was eventually placed as the bishop of Chiapas. Chiapas is the farthest south section of Mexico, and he became a great defender of the, of the Indians who were badly abused and misused. He was opposed by many colonists, and even his own priests came in rebellion, and I believe he was only bishop for something like three years before opposition was so much that he left at about age 73. However, when he returned to Spain, he continued to defend the Indians, was known as a defendant of the Indians, until he finally died at age 90. Another group that started in about the 15th century, or 16th century, actually 16th century beginning, is the Jesuits. 
They were somewhat later than the Augustinians and the Domitians and uh, uh, the Franciscans, uh, St. Francis, but were totally loyal to the Pope. This group I found very sad. There's a young man by the name of Ignatius of Loyola, and he apparently was attracted to the Protestant <clears throat> revolution that was just beginning at that point in time, when uh, he became much more entranced with the Pope. And as a member, he became totally loyal to the Pope, started a small group, uh, which gradually grew to about 15,000 sort of shock troops. And, the France, and by the way, the Jesuits are still very powerful today. Uh, and was joined by one of the key men who has joined him, was a fellow by the name of Francis Xavier. Francis wanted to uh, serve God and eventually was allowed to travel. And he traveled around the south of uh, Cape of Good Hope and over to Goa and the border of India and then through India and to the southeast and ends up actually going as far as Japan. He baptized hundreds of thousands of people during that period of time. Uh, now, what he meant by baptism was um, child or infant baptism in general, and they were taught catechisms and how to destroy idols. But in terms of any real um, Christian uh, teaching, no. And Xavier moved on again. I would now like to move to the story of the North American Indians and just mention uh, a few men who were very prominent uh, in the uh, dealing with the American Indians. The first man who in many ways was perhaps the greatest in many ways was a fellow by the name of John Elliot. Came from <clears throat> England, uh, became the uh, pastor of Roxbury at I think age 40, and then began to learn Algonquin and learned it very well and actually translated the Bible. And the first Bible translated in the United States, printed in the United States, is the Algonquin Bible. There is actually a uh, piece of uh, a paper, uh, a page of the Algonquin Bible. Uh, it's early printing uh, in uh, Crown College uh, in the seminary. He also saw many, many uh, of the Indians converted. Uh, helped to develop them into their housing situation, placed them in uh, certain groups in the housing. Uh, they had a special name for that, educated them, and really did a fantastic job. Unfortunately, uh, much of his work was undermined by some uh, unfortunate uh, wars that occurred. Now, another fellow who uh, was more towards the Midwest, a fellow by the name of Isaac McCoy. He early worked with uh, groups, including the Potawatomi Indians, uh, which we had contact with the area that is in southwestern uh, Michigan and northern Indiana, and really felt that uh, to be safe because of the land grabbing that the uh, settlers have been doing, that Indians ought to be uh, moved and given their own property in a place where they would be safe. 
unfortunately, this worked out very badly because he advocated this and advocated eventually the forceful moving of Indians. Well, people were interested in grabbing their lands, grab them and force them out to the, out into the West, especially the area of Oklahoma, where they were placed in res reservations. The most infamous of this was the so-called Trail of Tears, with the displacement of the Cherokee, uh, Cherokee Indians, who I believe at the present time are still the largest tribe in America, with a perhaps 20% death rate on this trip through across the, the American continent with inadequate clothing in the midst of winter. And uh, a trail of tears is appropriate name for it. Now, a couple other guys that were interesting, Marcus Whitman. Now, many people know Marcus Whitman. They say, oh, that's the guy who started the Oregon Trail. Yes, Marcus Whitman and uh, his partner uh, in crime, you could say, uh, Henry Spaulding, both went out to the West. Marcus was trained as a doctor. Henry had been trained as a pastor. Interestingly, uh, Marcus' wife, Narcissa, was uh, Henry Spaulding was interested in her and actually had proposed to her, and she had turned him down. He later married another woman, and interestingly, all four of them traveled apparently in a single uh, tent for a good bit of their trip, which must have led to a rather interesting time. Henry, when they got to the area of Idaho, uh, Idaho split off and went uh, to work with the Nez Perce Indians and had a very, very successful work there over many, many years. Marcus went on with Narcissa. They had one child who unfortunately wandered off and drowned. Uh, his wife was suffered uh, a lot of depression, and he started a um, mission compound, but as time went on, it appeared he was more interested in selling stuff to other pioneers coming through than he was in the mission work, although he did have some mission work as well. He worked with the Cayuse Indians, who were notoriously uh, dangerous and uh, deceptive, and during the measles epidemic, uh, the uh, number of the Cayuse Indians became quite incensed in him, and a group of them uh, went into his compound and killed him his wife, and a number of other people in the compound. They were later killed. We move further on now to the Mor Moravian Church. Now, Moravia is an area of Germany. Count Nicholas Zinzendorf, von Zinzendorf, was a count. He was born in wealth and high position. I understand his parents died at an early age. He was raised but he was placed in the, a special university, that is the University of Halle, which was started by August Frank and Philip Spainer, who were pietist Lutherans and preached the true gospel. He gets saved. He has a, uh, they want him to go into law, but he has a, an estate, and he sees that Moravians are fleeing, I think primarily from the Catholics, and so he opens his estate to the Moravians. Well, people were coming from all sorts of places. The most famous of those, by the way, was a fellow by the name of Christian David, who brought in a large group. But the groups initially started fighting so much among themselves that there was a question as to whether this whole thing, this whole place called Herrnhut, the 
Lord's house. Uh, it was going to split apart. However, five years after they started, there was a tremendous revival after uh, prayer, and they continued their prayer, in fact, set up a special prayer meeting place where someone was on his knees 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for 100 years. They developed a tremendous impact with missionary outreach in the early 1720s, 1730s, and uh, they sent out more missionaries in the next 30 years than all the Protestant missionaries sent out in the previous 200 years. Uh, among other people, uh, or other groups, people were sent to Suriname, South America, and we can still see today Herberg, that's uh, a stopping place, Zinzendorf, right on one of the main streets, and we have the Moravian-type church. They call them the ABK, Evangelii Bruderskomita, uh, as well. During this time, a fellow by the name of Hans Agede is also a, um, is interested in opening Greenland. And in fact, he does, and in fact, he is considered the apostle of Greenland. He had heard that a fellow by the name of Leif the Lucky uh, had opened, a uh, Viking-type fellow, had opened the area of Greenland to the gospel many years sooner. But when he got there, he found nothing. Uh, just a group of Eskimos. Uh, he had a lot of trouble learning the language. His kids did better. And uh, at that time, the uh, government had invested in some property or some uh, businesses in Greenland. And then when the business did not go well, they decided they'd close. Hans and Gede was still there, but Christian David had heard that they had closed. And so he decided that he would go to Greenland. Little did he know that Hans and Gede was already there. So the two of them met. There's a lot of competition between between the two. Eventually, uh, what broke things open was a measles epidemic, apparently started probably by some who had come with Christian David and brought uh, the uh, measles virus with them. Many died, but Hans Agede and his wife spent uh, many weeks, months, caring for those who were dying of measles. Both of them had health problems. His wife died but Hans remarried and came back and continued, and then his son continued. They translated the Bible, among other things, and he is now considered the Apostle of Greenland. Somewhat later, the, uh, we find the mission movement moving to uh, England and America. I'll actually jump over to the first well-known missionary in um, from America, and that man's name is Adoniram Judson. Now, he was not the first. There was, a, um, there was a black man who had gone to Jamaica before him who was a missionary as well. But Judson was the first, ended up going to, first to India, was basically kicked out of India, and went to Burma. He went with his first wife, was known as Anne Hasseltine, uh, Anne Hasseltine Judson, a fantastic woman. Unfortunately, after uh, the Burmese-British War, in which Adoniram Judson almost lost his life, 
while he was helping the British settle the dispute because he knew Burmese very well, his wife contracted probably cholera and died. He became very, very depressed, but a few years later ended up marrying a 30-year-old woman by the name of Sarah Boardman. Sarah and her husband had come to work with the Karen people in the bush, that is in the mountains, and had seen great success there. But her husband, George Boardman, contracted tuberculosis and died. She stayed on working in a uh, girls' home, and then uh, Ann Naram Judson proposed. They were married. They had, uh, she had 10 children during the next, I'm sorry, uh, eight children, I'm sorry, during the next 10 years, and uh, lost some. After 10 years uh, of her life uh, with Judson, uh, her, sick, uh, her body became worn out and she became quite sick and she was sent back to recover in the States but did not survive. Uh, Judson himself, after some 30-some years, came back uh, to the States. He had lost his wife, Anne Hasseltine. He had lost his wife, Sarah Boardman. He met a young girl who went by the name of Fanny Forrester. Her name was really Emily Chubbuck, but Fanny Forrester was the name that she was known by, who was a writer. He said, why don't you write about my wife, Sarah Boardman? She said, great. So uh, as she was doing so, uh, he fell in love with her, proposed. They got married and uh, lived together for about three years before Judson himself died. And uh, Emily Chubbuck, formerly known as Fanny, Fanny Forrester, uh, died uh, three years later. So Judson had a rough life. Judson, uh, among other things, translated the entire Bible into the Burmese language, and that language is, I have seen it, it is still being used in Burma today. He lost two wives on the field. His his time in prison was horrible. For example, they would tie the feet of the prisoners uh, together and then put a pole between their legs and lift them up so that only their head and shoulders were, uh, were touching the ground overnight. Many of them were killed horribly, often disemboweled and left to, uh, to die that way. And then he was finally on a forced march when it appeared that the Burmese were going to lose and even contemplated suicide. However, Judson eventually saw many come to the Lord Jesus, many thousands of people prior to his death. And his own family has continued for generations to serve the Lord. This, by the way, is fairly typical. Many missionaries on the foreign field lost their wives. Many lost their children. Some of the wives lost their husbands. It's a little bit interesting to uh, think about how Judson actually got on the field. Among other things, uh, I won't go through the whole story of him, but there was a, he, had, he was not saved when he graduated from college. He was saved during the time he was in uh, seminary as a special student. And then uh, a group of men were praying about missions in Williams College, another Christian college, and uh, they got caught one day uh, in a rainstorm and hid under a haystack. 
And during that time, they all uh, swore that they would become, uh, God willing, missionaries. Uh, Judson Red later uh, group, went with that group, uh, the group that had been at the Haystack meeting at Williams College, and he, in fact, represented them going overseas. There are a lot of other men who were involved in uh, missions. Uh, Andrew Fuller was a man who never really went on the field, but was very involved in terms of setting up mission boards and getting things started. William Carey, of course, was the father of missions and uh, was a missionary to India for many, many, many years. And again, uh, like uh, Judson, he lost his first wife, uh, who actually became insane and then sick and died at age 51. Uh, he lost his second wife, Charlotte Rumor, uh, and uh, then remarried a third wife and apparently had a very happy marriage until his own death. Carey himself was quite a fellow. Uh, Carey uh, started as a cobbler, which is less even than a shoemaker, uh, basically a repairer of shoes. But the man was brilliant, and he had a burden. He was very good in languages, and he also was very interested in the world and uh, would hold a globe and pray through areas as he was repairing his shoes. He became a Baptist preacher, and when a Baptist uh, mission was formed, basically after he preached a famous sermon and wrote a, a famous uh, text, he went overseas with a fellow by the name of John Thomas. Dr. John Thomas was in, was in India many years. He had originally hoped to be a gardener, but allergies presented that. That's how he ended up being a cobbler. But in India, apparently that was not a problem, and he became a very accomplished botanist. Uh, however, his main talent was in scriptures and in translation. He translated many different scriptures and at least three uh, different languages, Bible completely, uh, he had some terrible trials in addition to loss of children and his wife. Uh, had a disastrous fire that destroyed years of his work, but then went on. And uh, he also worked to abolish a thing called sati, which is the burning of widows on their husband's funeral pyre. And that was supposed to be a sign of great devotion. And since they believe in reincarnation, the individual is supposed to come back in the next reincarnation as a better individual. Well, he was able to finally get the British to outlaw that. And because of his multitude of talents, he also believed that nationals should uh, be the pastors, that we should have national churches, very much up to date as far as that is concerned. And so we call him the father of modern missions. I'd already mentioned uh, George Boardman once in terms of his wife marrying Adoniram Judson. He worked with a tribe in the interior uh, called the Karen tribe. Uh, unfortunately, although he was extremely successful with the Karen tribe, he contracted tuberculosis and died at a young age. As I mentioned before, his wife Sarah stayed, continued a girl's school, and then remarried Adoniram Judson, and so she had the privilege of being married to two incredible missionaries. One of my favorite stories is that of the Lone Star Mission. It's a mission that was almost closed in India. 
And uh, after someone wrote a very touching poem, they decided to keep it open. And of all people, the people they sent to this Lone Star mission, I would never have suspected it was Dr. John Clough. Well, John Clough was a doctor, but he was a, a doctor of engineering. He was an engineer, although he was a fine Christian man, and he had a tremendous impact on the Telugu people. He ended up having a fantastic ministry with the Dalits, the untouchables, on one time t baptizing 2,222 uh, Dalits on a single day. There is an estimate there may have been as many as a million people ultimately reached through the ministry of the Lone Star Mission and Dr. John Clough. He also helped build a uh, canal, bid on it, and uh, used his dollars to build it. They said he did the best job of any of those who were building it. I think it was four miles that he did of the whole thing. And the money of that was enabling his people in a time when there was no money and there was a great famine to stay alive. God worked. God also used a number of men to prepare in the 18th century for the great missionary movement in the 19th century. I'll just mention two or three of them. Off the, uh, one was Jonathan Edwards, uh, who is where David Brainerd died. Uh, also a fellow by the name of Gilbert Tennant, and another by the name of uh, Theodorus Friedenhauser, uh, were two evangelists who also had a great influence on missions during that time. There were some others as well and, uh, that allowed missions to have, uh, Edward Griffin and others, who allowed missions to have a great emphasis. So it did not come out of the blue. Now, during this time, we see a lot of uh, very well-known missionaries during what we call the Great Century or the 19th century. Perhaps one of the greatest uh, missionaries, although not the most famous, is Robert Moffat. Robert Moffat was a missionary who spent about 50 years on the field in South Africa. He went as a young man, his wife uh, came and they got married and joined him, uh, and he worked in a place called Kurumu, uh, Kuruman rather, and eventually uh, translated the Bible into Bikanatan. He also was a diplomat. When no one would print the Bible, he learned to print it himself, made his own print, got his own print machine, learned how to print, printed his own Bible, and uh, also had a very famous son-in-law by the name of David Livingston. He had spoken to David Livingston while uh, in England. Uh, David Livingston had uh, was a brilliant man who had trained himself uh, and originally planned to go to uh, China, but the Opium War presented, prevented him from going there, and so under the influence of Robert Moffat, he came, went to Kuraman, and was in, uh, eventually fell in love with Mary Moffat, the wife, I'm sorry, the daughter of Robert Moffat. The reason I missed that up is Mary Moffat is the wife of Robert Moffat, and his, their daughter's name is also Mary. So the daughter Mary married uh, David Livingston. Uh, David Livingston was uh, known primarily, although he was a missionary, preached the gospel, but he was especially known as an explorer and very well known. 
his most famous exploration feat was to find Victoria Falls on the Zambezi River, which he thought would be a, a way all the way to the interior. Uh, found out later on there were rapids that did not allow that to occur. And he opened up much of the uh, Africa to trade and to the gospel. We find also uh, another fellow is by the, uh, by, who did something rather unique. By the way, David Livingston was decorated by the uh, British government. Um, and that person was George Grenfell. Grenfell was also somewhat of an explorer and also had uh, a missionary impact, but he's best known for building the boat called Peace. And he, broke, and he built it piece by piece. What he did is he bought this steamboat that he wanted to use on the Congo River in uh, England, and he had been trained as an engineer. He disassembled the whole boat, put it in parts uh, weighing about 65 pounds, which would be a full head load for a man, and shipped it down to Africa. And at the other end, they hired uh, men to transport all these pieces with them. And he brought another engineer to help him, who, by the way, ended up dying. And I think there were either three or four engineers who eventually died while Grenville was uh, assembling his boat piece, one piece at a time, we can say. Eventually succeeded. His initial wife, his first wife, had died. I think a child had uh, later died, and eventually uh, married a, a West Indian woman. The uh, another famous man who uh, explored and explored the area above Niagara Falls. I'm sorry, Victoria Falls, a huge area. It's a fellow by the name of Francois uh, Arnot. Uh, also, perhaps one of the best-known ladies missionaries was Mary Slessor. Mary Slessor was a uh, lassie who uh, grew up in poverty, uh, worked in the inner city in Belfast, Ireland, and then eventually came, as her dream was, to Calabar in Nigeria. Eventually, she was able to go further to the interior and was in Okoyan for many, many years there. She opposed the uh, death of twins, was able to save many, witchcraft, and many other things, and learned the language so well and the culture so well that she was eventually made a vice consul in Nigeria. And because of that, she was uh, able to function in a great way. She finally moved to uh, farther into the interior, worked with the Igbo people uh, until her death. One of the things that we see as we look at Africa is that the key to getting into Africa is really the chiefs. If you have a chief supporting you, the chances of having success 
are really quite good. Without his support, not so good. There's a high cost of many missionary lives in Africa, but a high, a great harvest of souls in there. Actually, why do many of these people die? Well, some were killed by and murdered, um, but there was a creature that was responsible of missionary deaths. Now, Lion had built, had uh, attacked and uh, crushed the shoulder of David Livingston, and I'm sure that mosquito, I'm sorry, that uh, elephants and rhinoceros and hippopotamus were all dangerous animals, especially the hippopotamus, by the way, but the mosquito is the worst. Why? Because it transmitted malaria, and people did not have resistance to malaria, and at that time, people were not using anti-malarial medicines on a routine basis. Later on, when that developed, uh, and then, of course, DDT and other things were done for malaria, the risk is much less today. But even today in Africa, in many areas, you need to take anti-malarial medicine. I know during the time that we were in Liberia for five years, we took it continuously. Uh, in Suriname, I went to an area, did not take it, thinking that three days I'd probably be able to get away with it. <laughs> I, I was um, came down with malaria, and all uh, my wife and my two children that were with me also. So a mosquito is the most dangerous uh, of the animals to the white man in sub-Sahara Africa, of all things. I should mention also, um, on the east side, there was a... Uh, fellow who actually built a 230-mile road to open up Uganda to Lake Victoria. Name was John McKay. John McKay came with some other missionaries. He was uh, quite skilled. Uh, many of the missionaries died or were sick and went back home, but he was successful in bringing the road ultimately to Lake Victoria. A fellow by the name of Bishop Hangton <clears throat> came in that direction to help him. Um, <clears throat> a, an African king by the name of Bwanga opposed what he had to say and uh, ordered his death. Hangton, not to be outdone, as just before his death, said, I have a message for your king. Tell him that I have purchased the price of this road with my own blood. And with that, uh, we will uh, stop at this particular point in time, and uh, we'll uh, wish you the very best as far as your exam is concerned. Lord bless you.